Well, good morning, New Life Church, to those members who are scattered this morning, as well as to all of our friends who are joining us online from all over the world here on our Friday, our Sabbath here in the UAE. Thank you for joining us. Let me pray that you'll be blessed today through our service to the Lord. Well, today we will be studying the second message in our sermon series in the book of Judges. And last week we looked at the first couple of chapters that introduced the book of Judges to us. And we learned that God gave the land to Israel, but the people had a hard time holding on to it. Uh, the source of their problem was not the power of the Canaanite armies, but the weakness of their own faith. And as long as they served the Lord, they had peace and prosperity. But when they stopped serving Him, they had nothing but misery. And we see the cycle repeated throughout this book of Judges. And today we're looking at our first judge by the name of Othniel. And the title of my sermon this morning is Othniel, the Lion of God. So we'll be reading from Judges chapter 3. I'll be starting in verse 1. And we will read up to verse 11 this morning. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and all the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as, as, far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. That's an important verse. Underline that verse if you are taking notes. The daughters and their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. Verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Kuhushi, Kushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kushan Rishathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Please pray with me before we study God's word together. Father, we ask for your spirit to please open our eyes. May these words not just be facts of history that have been put down for our amusement. We pray, Lord, that these words would convict us. These words from your scripture would conform us. 
and make us more like your son, Jesus. We pray that you give us ears to hear, give us hearts, Lord, to embrace. And we pray that your spirit would humble us and your spirit would, would grant us the comfort we need and the conviction that we need today to become more like your son, Jesus. So we ask for your help this morning. Spirit of God, please teach us. For the sake of your great name, we ask this prayer. Amen. So Dr. John C. Maxwell is an American author and speaker and a pastor who has written at least 17 different books on the subject of leadership. And he is credited with this saying, everything rises and falls on leadership. So I think there's a lot of wisdom in this quote because it stresses the importance of leadership and a simple fact that nothing works well without good leadership. And he goes on to say in one of his books that leadership is a skill and an art that you must work on purposefully to develop. Well, over the past month, if you have been following international news, you would have seen unskillful leaders purpose, purposefully making unwise decisions which have caused much hurt and damage to their countries and their followers. And the way the book of Judges starts is really with a focus on leadership. In chapter 1, verse 1, the children of Israel ask the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? So going up really refers to leadership in battle. And there is, there is not yet a king in Israel at this point. So there is no designated individual who's going to lead them into battle. But it is the judges who will provide this leadership. It is the judges who provide military leadership throughout this book. And today we look at the first judge. Today, the first military leader is mentioned here for us in chapter 3. And his name is Othniel. And he has been called one of the Bible's best and least known men. So really from verse 1 to 6 is a second introduction. So his name is not even mentioned in those verses. It's a second introduction. We've already been introduced to the book in, in chapter 2. But now here in the first six verses, we have a second introduction. And it's a, almost a repetition exactly of what we've seen in chapter 2. But because it's repeated, remember nothing is put into the scriptures by accident. The fact that it is repeated is necessary for us to pay attention to it. Just like our teachers in school, when they repeated something, they were emphasizing a fact, they were emphasizing a point that they wanted us to listen to. And I think these are very important verses for us to pay attention to this morning. We are told in verse 1 to verse 4 why God left the people um, in the land. Look at verse 1. He left them there to prove Israel. And the word prove means to put to test. Put to test. So God allowed the pagans to stay in the land and to live around them to put Israel to the test, to prove them. They were to be tested to see how they would live when they were surrounded by wickedness. It's easy when everything is going well and there are no problems, isn't it, to say that, that we serve the Lord. But think about our circumstances. How much of our faith has been tested with this pandemic? 
when things are not going well, when we have trials, and the Lord has allowed them to put us to the test. His people were tested to see if they would keep His commandments or whether they would not. We see that in in verse 4. In fact, in verse 4, they failed the test. But then in verse 2, He left them there to teach new generations about spiritual warfare. And Israel proved that they could not be trusted to stand up against the enemy. They proved that they would rather join the enemy than fight against the enemy. So let's notice here how God delivers Israel from a time of of cruel bondage by a wicked king by raising up their first judge by the name of Othniel, the Lion of God. So my first point this morning is Israel's compromise. Israel's compromise. And we see that in verse 5 to verse 7. Read those portions, the portion of Scripture there. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So these verses here give us really the ugly details of Israel's first great failure. And what they did really stands as a, as a stark warning to all of the people of God in any age, not just here in the Old Testament. And what Israel did that, that we see here is we see all around us even today in our own day and age. And notice how they compromised on the Word of God and, and the will of God to do the things that they wanted to do, not what God wanted them to do. We see in verse 5, coexistence with the enemy. We saw last week, and it's repeated again for us here. The Bible says that the children of Israel lived among the tribes of Canaan. And the word lived in the KJV is, is dwelt. And that word has the idea of, of settling down, of, of setting up a house, of living there in a permanent state. So when Israel arrived in, in Canaan, they were commanded to destroy these people without mercy. But now they are living among them. And there has clearly been a compromise. And it took a short time, a short amount of time, for them to make friends with their their enemies. And here's the problem. Israel was supposed to be separate from the world. And we looked at that last week. They were to be set apart. They were to be holy, different, peculiar from all the nations around them. Not to be like the nations around them. And the Lord expected them to display His holiness to the world. And the world was to look upon Israel and see the difference that God made in their lives. But it didn't happen that way. Because they they didn't obey God's commands, and they rather ran after their flesh, and they rather imitated the world, they opened up a floodgate of sin that would end with them facing God's terrible chastisement. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, that as believers, we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, he says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So when we refuse to walk in His will, and we refuse to honor His, His word in our lives, we face the same consequences. We open up the floodgates of sin, and eventually that sin overwhelms us. And it will drown us in its violent current. It will destroy us. Sin is, not an in, sin is not a friend of the Christian. We see the spiral going worse and worse. We see in verse 6, not only were they living amongst the Canaanites, now they were marrying the Canaanites. After a while, the people of, of Israel got so used to living amongst these Canaanites that they began to, to marry with them. And this was expressly forbidden by the Lord. It was clearly commanded by God for them not to do this. But despite the commandments from the Lord, the Israelites thought they knew better, and they disobeyed God's clear commandments. And I can imagine them arguing this in their minds. I'm sure you can as well. Maybe the Canaanites thought, so maybe the Israelites thought, well, these Canaanites are are not really as bad as we thought they were. They, they're actually nice people once you get to know them. Um, they're not monsters, and, and their gods are not as bad as, as some other gods are. And, and you know what? Even the girls, even their daughters would make good wives. There, there's no reason why we can't marry them. After all, we're here to change them. Let's do Date evangelism. Well, Israel soon found out that it was them and not the Canaanites that had changed. And Satan knew that the most effective way to corrupt the faith of the Israelites was by intermarriage with the Canaanites. And history testifies to this successful strategy of Satan. God warned his people about the dangers of intermarriage with the Canaanites, but the Israelites thought that they knew better. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 33 says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Of course, we must interact with the world. We're not supposed to go and live in a cave. We're supposed to be the light in this, in this dark world. We are to share the gospel with people around us. But we need to keep our spiritual distance. We need to be separate from the worldly system around us. And it's really just a just a short step from walking with the world to living like the world. 
Again, remember last week I quoted Proverbs chapter 6, verse 26. Can a man scoop fire into his laps without his clothes being burned? And the answer is clearly no. We see the spiral going downwards and downwards now in verse 6, the end of verse 6 and the end of verse 7. We see now they've been living amongst them. We see that now they're marrying their Canaanite ladies. But now they are serving their idols. They are worshiping their idols. And notice the step. It was a very short step from, from living with them now to marrying them and now to worshiping their pagan gods. And again, you can imagine how they must have rationalized this. You know, perhaps they said, well, you marry a Canaanite girl and, and you just have to, you have to compromise. You have to understand how they are in order to live well with them. And they were brought up differently than we are. We have to accept that. We have to embrace their culture. We, we have to allow them to, to bring in their culture and their religion. We can't be so stubborn. After all, this is part of their culture. Can you imagine that type of argument going on in their minds? Sounds familiar, doesn't it, in our own day and age? And so these people, the, the children of Israel, who had been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and who had been delivered from Egypt, remember the bondage of slavery by God's mighty power, who had been the beneficiaries of, of God's power, and over and over again, now find themselves bowing before the idols of the Canaanites. At the end of verse 7, it tells us that they served Baal's and the Asheroth. Now, that's significant. The Baal and the Asherah, they were Canaanite fertility gods. And the practices that we find associated with the worship of Baal and, and Asherah are, are immoral. And they are indulgent. And they, they even include cultic prostitution. And all of that was carried out in an effort to stimulate fertility in the land. And the Israelites, they would, they would build these tall poles um, set up on hills in between their, their fields. And on these poles, they would carve out the image of Baal and, and Asherah. And then they would worship them. But the poles were positioned in certain places strategically. And the people would have, would have sexual intercourse in between these poles in an effort to convince their goddess Asherah to bless their, their crops and the ground on which they were harvesting on. And Israel was now very much involved with prostitution, the prostitution of their daughters in the worship of this goddess Asherah. What you have here is a group of people who have, who have gone just in, in one generation from worshiping God and fighting evil to abandoning God while they now sleep with the enemy. But how did this happen? How did this happen? Well, I think part of the reason that Israel kept turning to, 
to Baals and the Asheroth. And the reason that there were, were idols near, near Gilgal is that there was an allure to these religions. These religions looked nice to them. They were enticing. They appealed to their, their senses. Remember the desire of their, their flesh. And Baal was a materialistic religion. It was all about health, wealth, and prosperity. Sound familiar? And the worship of Asherah was, was sensual. It was pleasurable. And you see, temptation to sin is very attractive. It doesn't come with a big warning sign. It comes with a, with a welcome, with an invitation. It seems good in the moment. It seems attractive. But it doesn't tell you the consequences at the end. There's a thrill, perhaps even associated with the temptation. Maybe you can relate to this living in this pandemic. And really, it's the danger any time we have temptation and time on our hands. When the world around us is doing their thing, we are, we are tempted to really just imitate them. And the danger is to ignore what the world is putting in our faces, to ignore what God has told us in His Word, to embrace what the world is putting in our faces. I think our lifestyles have changed in many ways recently, but we need to be on guard against being impatient or, or speaking harshly to our, to our families. We need to be on guard against you know, going to websites or watching television shows that are inappropriate and, and are sinful. And we need to be on guard against the dangers of even alcohol or the dangers of, of worry or the dangers of fear or the dangers of complaining. And these are all temptations that I think we all face in this pandemic, especially more so now than ever. And we start to get bored and we start to get anxious. And we are tempted with the things of the world. We find ourselves on screens more often than we should be. We find ourselves isolated more than we should be. We don't have the accountability that we should have as a church. And we start to get used to that. And we start to enjoy the isolation. And we start to separate ourselves from the body that Christ has put us in. And we start to dwell with the Canaanites. And we start to enjoy what the Canaanites have to offer. And before long, we end up worshiping the idols of the Canaanites. Look at verse 7. Each step they took led them further and further away from God. Each step they took away from Him led them down a pathway totally abandoning him and his ways. Verse 7, the beginning of verse 7 tells us that they forgot the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord their God. Now the word forgot means to, to ignore or to, to seize, to care. And they forgot to care for their Lord. They intentionally ignored God. And the people of Israel now reached a place where they didn't want anything more to do with God. 
They ceased to care about what he cared about. They ceased to love what he loved. They ceased to appreciate what he had to say about the word. And they reached a place of total indifference toward the Lord God. And again, this is not so different to our situation that we find ourselves in today. And there are many in our day who, who call themselves Christians who are very comfortable to simply ignore God and to ignore His Word. And most folk know that the Lord is there, and they know that His Word has has something to say to them about their lives and, and how he, he loves them. They know this as a fact, but they don't allow the truth of God's word to drop from their heads to their hearts, just a few inches. They know God has a claim on their lives, but they choose to ignore that. They choose to ignore that truth. And rather, they're willing to embrace the lies of the devil. And they harden their hearts against the living God. They harden their hearts against His Word. And they turn a deaf ear to Him. And a deaf ear to His call on their lives. As far as they are concerned, God doesn't matter anymore. And He might as well not even exist. And that is a dangerous place to be. As we will see from the lives of these Israelites. We've just seen their compromise here in, in the first point. And my second point this morning is Israel's chastisement. Israel's chastisement in verse 8. Read there with me. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim, eight years. So that is where Israel is now spiritually. But that is not where, where God would leave them. You know, Charles Spurgeon, he used to say, God never allows his people to sin successfully. And that is, you know, you might be able to do it, you might be able to sin, but you won't get away with it forever. It won't bring you perfect satisfaction. It won't complete you. There is always a price to pay for disobedience and for rebellion against God. Notice the word there, anger. And the word anger refers to a, to a flaring of the, of the nostrils. It is the image of, of a face filled with, with wrath. And the word kindled means it means hot, or it means to be furious. Notice here, God was not furious with the Canaanites. God was furious with his children, with the Israelites. He hated the sins of the Israelites. Sorry, he hated the sins of, of the Canaanites, but the Canaanites were lost people. They weren't his chosen people. They weren't saved. They weren't set apart. They weren't the holy people that Israel was supposed to be. The Canaanites didn't have God's law. They had not been redeemed and, and separated and commanded to be different. They weren't taught in the things of the Lord. 
God was angry, but he was angry with his people. And they were about to be punished for their sins against God. I want us just to apply that for a moment this morning, if you're still watching. And I hope you are. If you don't get angry with me, this is the word of God that we are studying this morning. If you are saved and you choose to walk away from the Lord, you might as well know that there will be a price that you have to pay. God will bring His chastisement into your life. The Bible tells us, again, this is not me. This is what the Scriptures have to say about it. God does this not to hurt us, but He does it to help us. Help us to get back where we are supposed to be. God knows best, folks. Don't be like the Israelites who thought they knew better than the Lord. He knows what we need. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. The Scriptures tell us, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. Look at verse 11. For the Lord disciplines, sorry, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you're a believer this morning, the scriptures tell us that we can expect chastisement from our Lord. And thank the Lord for that. If you face the discipline of the Lord, take encouragement from that, that you are a child of God. You know, I don't go around disciplining other people's children. As much as some people want me to, that is not my job. I'm not their parent. My job is to discipline my children. God's job to discipline His children. Here we see the wrath of God. We are told in verse 8 that God sold Israel into the hands of a pagan king. It has the idea of, of giving up or giving over into one's control or, or power. In other words, Israel gave themselves to paganism. Israel gave themselves. They weren't forced. And God punishes them by, by giving them what they want. Because He knows the end result. He knows the painful consequence. They did not want to follow His rules in their lives. So He allowed them to be ruled by a harsh pagan king. The name of this king is a, is a mouthful. I practiced it the whole week and I still got it wrong this morning. Kushan Rishathaim. Kushan Rishathaim. Now, this name literally means double wicked Kushan. Double wicked Kushan. And all this means is that Israel reaped what they had sown. They wanted paganism, they wanted their sin. They wanted the, the enticement. They wanted the materialism of the, the false gods. And God gave them everything that they asked for and more. He gave them Kushan Rishathaim. Again, this is not so unfamiliar to us. If you, if you are honest with yourself this morning, we face the same dangers today. 
There are people watching today who are not as close to the Lord as, as they once were. The temptation to, to even skip gathering with the church online at, at 10 a.m. each Friday has become so attractive. And maybe you're not studying God's Word anymore like you used to. And you're not as committed as, as you used to be. And you're no longer faithful to the Lord like you once were. You just don't serve Him like, like you used to. Other things have captured your heart. Other things have taken place in your life, the place where God used to be. Other gods are really on the throne. It's with a small g. Well, don't be surprised when you reap what you have sown. And those things that are so important to you can become tyrants. They can trap you, and they can control you, and they can become your Kushan Rishathaim. They can become your double wicked. You will reap the harvest in the lives of what you have sown. You may reap your harvest in God selling you to the things that you are running after. But you will reap your harvest. The fact is Spurgeon was right. God never allows His people to sin successfully. We will always reap what we will sow. Galatians chapter 6 tells us that clearly. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he reap also. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Look at verse 8 in our passage. We see God's wrath, His full wrath. We've seen the fierceness of His wrath. Now we see the fullness of His wrath here. God sells them into slavery in verse 8. And He leaves them for eight years in this condition. Eight years in slavery. He allows them to experience the full measure of, of what their sin has just cost them. And when they dwelt among the Canaanites, they married their sons and daughters, and they bowed down to their gods. They never thought it would come to this, but it did. It did. God has allowed them to reap what they were sowing. They paid a terrible price for their foolishness. Someone else said, Sin will take you further than you want to go. Keep you longer than you want to stay. And cost you more than you want to pay. Let me repeat that. The author is anonymous, but so full of truth. Sin will take you further than you want to go. Keep you longer than you want to stay. And cost you more than you want to pay. I've shared this illustration previously about how Eskimos kill wolves. Well, the consuming, self-destructing nature of sin is, is like the technique used by the, the Eskimos to kill wolves. So first, the, the Eskimos take their knife and they coat their knife blade with, with animal blood, and then they freeze that blood on the blade. And then they add another layer of, of blood, and they freeze that, that layer, and then another and another until 
the, the, the blade is com completely um, sealed. It looks almost like an like a ice lolly. And then they put the handle in the snow. And then they wait for the wolves to come. Of course, the noses of the wolves are particularly sensitive to the smell and the scent of, of blood. And when they get there, they, they see this and they, they start to, to lick this. And of course, as they take off the, the frozen layer of blood, it becomes more exciting. And the more they lick, the more they start to become ravenous with this bloodlust that they have. And they begin to lick faster and faster. And eventually, the blade is exposed. But they're so ravenous that they cut their, their, their own tongue while they are busy licking. And they end up tasting their own blood and they become more and more ravenous and they lick faster and faster until their, their tongue is totally lacerated. And they end up bleeding to death. It's a gruesome illustration, but I think it's a very, a very accurate demonstration of, of, of what sin does to us. This is a, a picture of how sin destroys. Now don't be fooled by the temptation of sin. Sin can be very exciting. Sin can be very attractive. Sin can be very appealing, even delicious. But it will ruin you in the end. Sin will ruin you in the end. Without realizing it, your sinful thoughts and your desires will lead to sinful actions, which always leads to death and destruction. We are consumed, the Bible warns, by our sin. Are you a slave to your sin? Let me ask you that question this morning. Are you unable to resist the allurement, the enticement of sin? If you can relate to this question this morning, and you have no control of the way that you are involved in sin, then you need to be born again. Please hear the word of God this morning. Don't be deceived by religion. Don't think that your good morals are going to keep you away from the destruction and the wickedness of sin. You need to be born again. Jesus came so that he would save sinners from their sins. Only through the power of the Spirit of God will you be able to have victory over sin, not in your own efforts. But if you're a Christian this morning and you struggle with sin and you're playing with sin and you're falling into temptation like the Israelites, let me ask you this question this morning. What kind of price are you ready to pay for your sin? Hear the scriptures this morning, folks. Do not be deceived. The scriptures tell us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. God is not mocked. Do not be deceived. We've seen Israel's compromise. We've seen Israel's chastisement. Now, my last point this morning is Israel's champion. Israel's champion, we see in verse 9. 
Let's read there. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So finally, when Israel came to themselves, they, they call on God and he hears them. And when they turn back to him in, in their hearts, he reached out to them in deliverance. He raised up their first judge, a man by the name of Othniel. And the name Othniel means literally lion of God. And Othniel lived up to this name as the, the scripture refers to him as a deliverer, as a, as a savior, the small s. And that's just what Othniel was. But let's look at some of his credentials there. Well, we see there that he was Caleb's younger brother. We see he was Caleb's younger brother. So the Hebrew word for brother used here is a, is a primitive word, and it's used in a wider metaphorical sense, similar to um, in India when somebody was, was a cousin, they would call him a cousin brother or a, or a cousin sister. It was used in a wider metaphorical sense. So Othniel is really the, the nephew and the son-in-law of Caleb. And if you've read your Bible, I hope you remember who Caleb was. Othniel is also no stranger to us in the, in the Scriptures. We read about him in, in Joshua chapter 15, and we've read about him in, Josh, in, in Judges chapter 1, from verse 11 to verse 15. And I think the author here expects us, the readers, to make a connection between Caleb and Othniel and the reference to Israel's sin that we've just looked at in verse 5 to verse 7. Remember, the Israelites gave their daughters in marriage to the Canaanites. And while they took wives for their sons from the Canaanites. But now Othniel is about to be introduced as Israel's first judge. And I believe that the author wants us to see very clearly that Othniel is different. Othniel is different to the rest of the Israelites. That Othniel is indeed a man set apart. That he is indeed a man who is righteous. And he's a godly man. A man who did not take a Canaanite wife. Instead, he was the man who captured Kirath Sephar. And as a result, he marries Caleb's daughter. He takes Caleb's daughter for his wife. So Israel, sorry, Othniel was not like the majority of the, the other Israelites who now have married Canaanite spouses. Caleb was different. Caleb was the, was the kind of, sorry, Othniel was different, but we know who Caleb was. Caleb was the kind of man um, who would have ruled Israel, who would have been a king of Israel. We know, remember, he was one of the spies who, who went into the promised land, a man who trusted the Lord. But Caleb is old. As a number of Bible commentators have told us, Caleb would have been one of the, the best judges, a man who was set apart for this. But 
But the Lord doesn't make him a judge. He makes Othniel the judge. We see in verse 10 that the Spirit of the Lord is upon Othniel. So Othniel didn't have the power in and of himself to deliver Israel. He didn't have the capabilities. He didn't have the power. But we, says, we see here the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And the Spirit of God works through him. And really, it's the Spirit of God who did the deliverance. God delivered Israel through Othniel. He used him. He was a man willing to be used by the Lord, a vessel that could be used by the Lord. We don't have many more details about the life of Othniel compared to the other judges, but the details that have been recorded to us are very significant, very particular. Othniel's victories are attributed to God rather than to himself. And again, I think that's a a, a very clear contrast to the Israelites who were living for themselves. They weren't living for God. But we see here how different Othniel is. God raises him up, and it's God who empowers him with the Spirit. And really, that's all we need to know. That is all we need to know. The truth is left to ourselves. We are incapable of serving God as He deserves to be served. And the only way we will ever be useful to the Lord is if we are full of Him and empty of ourselves. If we are controlled by the Spirit of God like Othniel was. And the Spirit of God will enable us to stand against the enemies around us. The Spirit of God will, will make us powerful for the glory of God. And that is the secret to living a successful Christian life. And here we see Othniel's conquest here in these verses. God gave Othniel the ability to defeat this double wicked Cushan Rishathaim. God allowed Othniel to deliver Israel from the bondage of this powerful pagan king. And God empowered Othniel to, to judge the nation of Israel for the rest of his life. The Bible tells us that God gave Othniel victory in his life because Othniel gave himself to the Lord. But before Othniel passes off the scene to heaven, to his reward waiting for him, mention is, is made here of his legacy. And I want, us to, I want us to finish on this this morning. Notice there at the end, verse 11, the land had rest for 40 years. The land had rest for 40 years. A whole generation would grow up to enjoy the inheritance given by God and preserved for them through the exploits of men like Othniel, the true line of God, as his name implies. What is your ambition for, for your family this morning? May it be all of our ambition to cast off the works of darkness to put on the armor of light and to strive to live against the enemy who wants to rob us of the enjoyment of our inheritance. Wouldn't you want your children to enjoy the inheritance that you have to give to them? I'm not talking about the house. I'm not talking about the car. I'm not talking about your bank balance. I'm talking about your spiritual legacy to live in peace with God. Wouldn't you want that for your family? Are you concerned about the legacy that you will leave behind? Where are you spiritually with the Lord today? Are you concerned about 
some around you who you have who have gone off in search of the things of the world, maybe a close relative, maybe a child. If any of these things are true this morning, why don't you come before Him today and deal with this issue? Do you want the Lord to use your life for His glory? Has God been dealing with you about your, your walk with Him? Do you want to see Him do great things through you? Do you want to be free from the, the yoke of idolatry? Do you want to see your family delivered from the bondage of sin in the world? Do you want victory in your life? Well, if you do, yield to the Lord like Othniel did. Allow the Lord to lead you and control you. Hate sin like God hates it. And love the things that God loves. And He will use you for His glory. Sin is not a friend. Sin will destroy you. But the Bible says if we repent of our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is a good, good Father who loves His children and is speaking to us today and warning us how we can live a life that is full of peace and full of purpose for His glory and for our joy. Pray with me this morning. Father, thank You again for this very timely reminder, Lord. Lord, the details in this book are, are so raw. They really are so un-PC, Father. But they are so relevant, Lord. So appropriate for our, our day that we live in. And so necessary for us. Lord, I pray, please, that... This morning, if people are watching and they are convicted by their, their love for sin, by the way that they have compromised with certain sins that they are enjoying, pray that you would help them to see the danger of it. Help them to see how offended you are by that sin. Help them to see that you will judge them for rejecting you and for embracing the world. Please, Lord, help us not to be tempted by Satan. Help us not to be deceived by his lies. Help us to see clearly that sin will destroy us. But, Father, you have overcome sin. Help us to put our faith in you, not in ourselves, not in our own efforts, not in our own experiences. Help us to put our faith in you, the one who has conquered sin, who has conquered death, who has risen from the grave to prove that He is Lord of all. So Lord, we pray today, please deliver us. Deliver those this morning who need to be delivered. Grant salvation to those this morning that are still slaves of their sin. Grant them repentance and faith this morning. May they call upon the name of Jesus Christ, who has died for their sins. Pray for those believers this morning that you would grant them victory over temptation and over sin. That you may be honored by our lives and that we would be used for your glory. May we be vessels, Lord, that would be used for your glory. Please, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.